Welcome to Alabama Short Stories, when you're a little behind on your Alabama history. I'm your host, Sean Wright. I love bananas. I love it in every form. Given a choice between chocolate or banana moon pie, it's banana every time. Popsicles? When everyone chooses their favorite color, or is it flavor, I go off script and I get the banana. Banana-flavored Laffy Taffy? Yes, please. I will judge your barbecue restaurant based on how good your banana pudding is, not your pork. If your meat and three restaurant doesn't have banana pudding, why are you even in business? The three refers to vegetables, but when it comes to steam table restaurants, banana pudding is a vegetable. There are banana milkshakes, banana smoothies, and banana yogurt. You can purchase banana flavoring to create your own banana foods. You can usually find a banana on the kitchen counter in my house waiting to be consumed. My only problem is that it's either tomorrow's banana or yesterday's banana. Getting the perfect ripeness can be as much luck as anything else. But yesterday's bananas become banana bread. Now here's a funny thing about those banana products not created from fresh bananas. I'm looking at you, Laffy Taffy. Those flavors are not from the banana you see on the grocery store shelves today, but from a banana of the past one that is almost extinct today. The banana is the largest of the herbaceous flowering plants. It means that there are no woody stems above ground. The banana plant looks like a tree, but it's just a false stem. At the end of the stem is where the banana bunch is. Now this is great for the grower because the banana plant grows fast, as much as 20 inches in 24 hours, providing them with plenty of product. But here's the thing about those bananas. Remember all the problems you have with seeds when trying to eat your banana? No, of course not. The seeds are pretty much non-existent in cultivated varieties. They're there, it's those black specks. You would probably find hard seeds if you found a banana in the wild. And we can't have seeds getting in the way of our banana enjoyment. Now the banana flavor I enjoy in my Laffy Taffy and banana popsicles is from the cultivar Gros Michel, not the cultivar Cavendish, which we enjoy today. The Gros Michel, also known as Big Mike, was the banana imported in the United States until the 1950s when Panama disease wiped out tracts of Gros Michel plantations throughout Central America. Panama disease is resistant to fungicides, so once the plant is infected, that was it. The plantation would be infected so you couldn't replant, and there would be no seeds to plant more Gros Michel bananas elsewhere. Now, The Cavendish was used to replace the Gros Michel mainly because they were resistant to the fungus. Banana enthusiasts will tell you that the Cavendish is not as tasty as the Gros Michel. The Gros Michel has a higher concentration of isoamyl acetate than the Cavendish. This is the ester used for the banana flavoring in my Laffy Taffy. Now, are you familiar with the song, Yes, We Have No Bananas? It's from the 1922 Broadway review, Make It Snappy, and was inspired by the shortages of bananas due to the infestation of Panama disease. Now, in the future, we may eat an even different cultivar than the Cavendish. It is very vulnerable to disease and could eventually lead to commercial extinction. So you may be wondering what our story about bananas has to do with Alabama. Sam Zamuri was born in 1877 in the Bessarabian town of Kishinev, Formerly Russia, this town is now part of Moldova. In 1891, when he was 14 years old, this Jewish immigrant and his aunt arrived in New York City. 
They went to Selma, Alabama, where his uncle owned a small store. He'd moved years before to work and make it possible for his family to come to America. Why the uncle picked Selma is unknown. It was a prosperous town before the Civil War, but was struggling after. One thing is known. Jewish immigrants would generally move to the South due to the inhospitable attitudes of the North towards Jews, and they would try to spread out so they didn't compete against each other. There are two similar stories in Birmingham. A.B. Loveman, a Jewish immigrant from Hungary, opened his store in Greensboro in the 1860s before moving to Birmingham and growing his store Loveman's. Louis Pazitz, a Jewish immigrant from Russia, opened his store, the Pazitz Dry Goods Company, in 1899. Pazitz would be an institution until 1986 when it was sold and converted to McRae's. And before I move on, I can't help but mention Lehman Brothers, which started as a dry goods store in 1844 in Montgomery. Henry Lehman was a Jewish cattle merchant who immigrated from Rimpar, Bavaria. His brothers joined him in the next couple of years, and the store would be known as Lehman Brothers. Now, you may know this company is the financial services institution that collapsed dramatically in 2008. Zimmery was a hard worker and saved enough money to relocate his family to America. But in 1893, his life would change forever. Zimmery saw his first banana. A banana jobber was making a deal with a grocer, and he could see that there was money in bananas. He decided his future would be bananas. Bananas were an exotic fruit that only the rich could afford, so seeing one in Selma was rare, but that was changing. Bananas were slowly becoming a staple in everyday kitchens. Mobile, about 150 miles south of Selma, was a major banana importer, the third largest importer by the beginning of the 20th century. Zamuri went to the docks in Mobile to see the banana freighters unloading their cargo. It must have been a sight as bananas were unloaded from the ship by hand. They were closely inspected, checking for color, bruises, and spots. The good ones would be loaded and cushioned with straw onto an air-cooled car and shipped out almost immediately. Time was not on their side as the bananas were quickly ripening and needed to get to market to turn a profit. Boston Fruit Company would classify their bananas this way. A banana with one freckle on it was called a turning. With two freckles, it was a ripe. Turning means the banana was about to be worthless and would be sold in the area around the docks. The ripes would be tossed in a pile and discarded. The ripes were perfectly good to eat then and maybe for three to five days. But they would never make it to market in time, so there was no effort trying to ship them. And on top of all the effort to classify bananas and get them loaded on a rail car into market quickly, handling bananas was dangerous. And I'm not even talking about the potential to slip on a banana peel. There was always a chance that a scorpion had taken the ride across the ocean inside a bunch, only to sting the unsuspecting dock worker as he carried the banana on his back to the dock or rail car. Where the company saw a ripened banana as worthless, and some of us see it as banana bread, Zamuri saw an opportunity. He spent $150 on enough bananas to fill a boxcar headed north to Selma. He had the product, but he didn't have much time. It would become worthless if he didn't sell his product in three days, five days at the most. It would take three days to get to Selma if there weren't any problems along the way, which of course is what happened. Zamuri didn't have the money for a ticket himself, so he bedded down with his cargo and set in for the ride, babysitting his ripes and assumingly dodging scorpions. In Meridian, Mississippi, he was complaining to the yardmaster about how long it was taking to get to Selma. 
The yardmaster saw the fruit and wondered if there would be a way to alert grocery stores along the way to meet the train at the station so Zamuri could sell the bananas right off the car. The train would soon pull out of the station, but Zamuri ran to the Western Union office. He got the man on duty to wire the other operators up the rail line to let them know about his bananas and to put the word out. He bribed each one of the operators with a bunch of bananas for assistance. As the train pulled into the stations, grocers were waiting to get their hands on the bananas. He sold his last one in Selma and then walked home. His initial rail car of bananas made a small profit, but he could see a profitable business in the future. He made the trip time and time again. Sam the Banana Man, as he came to be known, sold 20,000 bananas in 1899, and in four years, the number would top half a million, all on a product that the banana importers tossed aside. Word got out about Sam the Banana Man, and when the president of United Fruit, Andrew Preston, visited Mobile in 1903, he wanted to meet Zamuri. Preston came away impressed, saying, He's a risk-taker, he's a thinker, and he's a doer. Zamuri signed a contract with United Fruit that gave him all the ripes United Fruit had, squeezing out any potential competitor. It also set up a relationship with a company that would last most of his life. That year, Zamuri went into business with Ashbel Hubbard. A partnership was a big deal for Zamuri, who was comfortable working alone and being able to make all the decisions himself. But he wanted to expand beyond ripes and become a banana importer. Doing so was going to take capital and someone to manage the office. It was probably a convenient partnership as Hubbard also had a contract with United Fruit. One of their first decisions was to purchase the Kaimel Fruit Company, which had banana plantations in Honduras. Kaimel had come on hard times and the purchase was a gamble. Capital, a new partnership, the purchase of Kaimel Fruit Company, and a contract with United Fruit were helpful but to change their status in the banana business, they needed steamships. Fortunately for them, the Thatcher Brothers Steamship Company had gone into receivership and he saw an opportunity in others' misfortune. They purchased two steamships in the company's contracts and created the Hubbard Zamuri Steamship Company. United Fruit was a silent partner in the venture as well. Zamuri continued to grow Kaimel Fruit Company, making his partner increasingly nervous thinking they had extended their business too quickly and he wanted out. Zamuri bought Hubbard's interest. Hubbard would have become a wealthy man if he'd just hung on a bit longer. What a missed opportunity. Zamuri moved to New Orleans to be closer to the action. New Orleans was the largest port for banana importing. Kaimel Fruit Company would stay in Mobile until January 1914 when it also moved to New Orleans. Bananas would continue to be imported into the Port of Mobile, but Zamuri's time in Alabama would be over. His story would continue to grow in New Orleans and Central America. It was easier to do business in Central America through bribes, and that was the case in Honduras. In 1910, Honduras was working to repay a debt to the United Kingdom. Special bankers were installed to ensure taxes were paid and money was available for repayments. Zamuri was concerned it might hurt his business, so he helped stage a coup that installed exiled former Honduran President Manuel Bonilla. Zamuri and Cayamel Fruit Company were given favorable tax and land concessions. Even though United Fruit was a minor investor in Cayamel Fruit, they competed in the market, and in 1929, under pressure from the State Department, Zamuri sold Cayamel Fruit to United Fruit. As part of the deal, Zamuri was forced to retire but he wouldn't for long. Within a couple of years, United Fruit's value dropped 90% due to mismanagement and the Great Depression. 
With his wealth tied to the company's value, Zamuri orchestrated a stunning takeover of United Fruit, installing himself as chairman and replacing the board of directors. The stock doubled in value within two weeks of the takeover. Zamuri would lead United Fruit for the next quarter century until he retired. He died a few years later in 1961 at 84. So the next time you go to the grocery store and see the bunches of bananas on display, remember Samuel Zamuri, Alabama's banana man, and the impact he had on the banana trade. And when you look at the label on the banana, you won't see United Fruit, but you will know the name it goes by today, Chiquita. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Alabama Short Stories Podcast. You can continue to support the show by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you haven't subscribed, do it so you don't miss an episode. You can also support the show by purchasing the companion book, Alabama Short Stories Volume 1, featuring the first three seasons of the podcast. You can purchase it at Amazon.com, Bookshop.org, and other online bookstores. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time on Alabama Short Stories.